That's my single-lens reflex camera taking another photograph. No matter which analog camera you have, from a cheap plastic toy camera to something more expensive and iconic, their functions are limited without a roll of film inside. What is involved in making films, and how do they ensure consistency and reliability for every photographer? To find out, I visited a factory owned by Harman Technology, the company that manufactures all the Ilford black and white films and photographic paper used by decades of photographers all over the world. I am Vivian Lee. Later on, I will be talking to sales and marketing director Stephen Briley to find out about the company and how they managed to become a successful analog photography manufacturer today. But first. I want to get on the factory floor to find out how the products are made. The factory is on a 35-acre site. That's equivalent to just over 26 American football fields in size. All films and paper products begin with making a light-sensitive photographic emulsion, starting with the raw ingredients. The first stage of the emulsion-making process is where silver nitrate and halide salts are mixed together to form the silver halide crystals. Andrew Cross. Operations manager of the emulsion making plant and the coating plant. He takes us through the steps of making a photographic emulsion. We're now in the emulsion making plant. The flashing lights denote that there are white lights on in the rooms, and if we were manufacturing, those lights should be off. So that means we can go in. So、okay. let's go in. Great. This is the room where we grow the silver halide crystals. So what we have, have here are a number of stainless steel vessels where the silver halide crystals are are grown. We're in a room and there's a massive metal tank here with V8, and then there are lots of metal pipes and stuff coming in and out of it and wires. If you had a camera, you would see a thousand-liter vessel recirculating seed emulsion mixed in gelatin round a six-inch circuit, and in the middle of that circuit is a huge mixer at the front of which we inject silver nitrate and salt solutions. The salt solutions combine with the silver nitrate to produce a silver halide, which coats the seed crystals that have been recirculated around the growth plant. The process is controlled by a process control system, and all the wires and measuring monitors that you can see are actually feeding back to the process control system what the chemistry of the growing batch is is like, such that we can make sure that the batch that we make this time is the batch that we, the same as the batch we've made previously, and is the same as the batch that we make next time. So everything is controlled. There is no manual intervention. There is no hands-on in terms of manufacturing the product. Everything is automatic. There are two manufacturing growth schemes in the room that we're in now. One is called Rapid Mix, where we grow the new generation of Harman paper products, and we also make the 100, 400, and 3200 delta film products using one of the schemes that we have in front of us. We can change the type of halide that we have, such that we can grow different shells containing different types of silver salts, and that imparts a different photographic characteristic. For the photographer, so you can grow different shapes, crystals, which ends up with different types of products. That's correct. Different shapes and different structures. So, if you took a section through the crystal, you'd see different shells that have been successively grown on the central core of the seed. So, when you say the seed crystal, I guess these are small ones that you're growing into larger ones. That's correct. The seed crystals that we make are made made off off offline. In、uh, a small-scale plant in our R&D area, and those are brought over to the main manufacturing plant where the larger crystals are made. Kind of like what you do at school in chemistry when you have to grow a crystal in a solution. It's very much like chemistry. What you can hear now is the automated system going through a wash sequence. The process control system manufactures the batches, and it washes up each part of the plant as the batches are made. There are half a dozen different parts of the plant where the raw materials are assembled, where the crystal growth takes place, where the crystals are made more sensitive to light. How long does it take to grow it to whatever the sizes that you need? Depends on the type of, of crystal. Some film,、uh, some film emulsions can take up to seven hours to grow, but then you've got to remove the excess salt and you've got to sensitise them as well. So they can take up to ten hours to manufacture a batch from raw material assembling to capturing the product at the end. 
is each vat dedicated to one type of emulsion or can you change it? No, this plant can manufacture 32 different types of emulsion, so it manufactures all the, the Harman range of, of film and paper products. Some batches take longer than others, and some batches are more expensive than others. So a batch of a HP5 fast component emulsion might cost about £15,000 in raw materials, whereas a fast component in, say, 3200 Delta can cost upwards of £70,000. The majority of that, of course, is silver. What I'm trying to ask is... Do you need a dedicated system for each type of emulsion? No. Every part of the, the plant is universal. So the rapid mixing vessel that you, that you saw in front of you, there is just one rapid mixing vessel which will manufacture all of the delta range of film products. It also manufactures the newer ranges of Harman paper products as well. So it's a universal vessel. Okay. But, but there are other vessels in the plant that are used for other growth schemes. So if we're making our FP4, our PAN-F, our HP5, our XP2, or multigrade 4 emulsions, they're grown in a different vessel, but that vessel is dedicated to those type of emulsions. It's all about when the emulsions were designed. So if the emulsions are new technology, they will be designed to be made in a rapid mixing scheme, whereas our more mature and traditional products are made using conventional scheme which has relies on gravity rather than uh, pumped solutions through jets. When you're designing motion you have to think about the equipment that you're going to make it with so the older ones maybe is an older technology that's that that's correct the newer emulsions are scale independent so it means that i can make a batch that's only 100 kilos or i can make a batch that's 1500 kilos in size it doesn't matter how big that batch is i will always get the same product every time whereas more conventional emulsions are designed for a particular vessel and are not easily rescaled once the silver halide crystals are grown to the right size the emulsion is sent to another room upstairs for the next stage of the manufacturing process. Where are we now? We've walked into the ultrafiltration room, which removes the excess salts from the growth media. This process takes about an hour, and the excess counter-ions are not required after growth. They're filtered out using what you can see in front of you, which is a number of cartridges that have special membranes in that keep the gelatin molecules, keep the silver halide crystals within the emulsion, but take out the waste counter-ions that are no longer required. It's the salts that are the waste products. So where does it go after it's done this part? It's sent downstairs to a room where it's sensitised both for its overall sensitivity to light and it's also where the cocktail of dyes are added for film to make sure that it's panchromatic. So the process happens in three stages that happen in three separate rooms? That is correct. There would be one batch in each room uh, that the process control system is managing through the plant. If we take the Delta range of films, as an example, which is available in three varieties with different speeds, the emulsion for each is similar in the way that they are grown, filtered and sensitised. But they also have key differences that make them different speeds. For example, the silver halide crystals differ in sizes and have different chemical compositions. Delta crystals in the 3200 speed films are much bigger and flatter, which help to capture more light whereas the crystals in the 100-speed film are smaller and have a much finer grain. The sensitization process further enhances their light sensitivity, as well as sensitivity to a wider range of colours. Andrew explains more about the sensitization process and how they differ between different products. When you grow a batch of emulsion, it has a very low sensitivity to light and it's only sensitive to blue light. So if you wanted to take a, a flash photograph or a photograph that's capturing an image in thousandths of a second, you need to be sure that it's as sensitive to light as possible. So what you do is you grow silver, sulphide and gold specks on the surface of the crystal and it's that that imparts the sensitivity to light. Sensitivity to all the light other than blue or? No, just light generally, but it's only sensitive to blue light. So then you add a cocktail of green and red dyes. So for film, you add green and red dyes so that it will not only pick up the blue shirt, but it'll also pick up flesh tones as well. So it'll capture an, ac an accurate image. 
all films actually start out as orthochromic and you have to make it panchromic by adding stuff to it. That's correct, yes. Some films are designed to be orthofilms. We, we market orth- orthofilms, we also market films that are also far red sensitive and these are diff- they require different dyes to enhance the sensitivity in that area. So SFX, for instance, has a different dye from HP5, FP4 and Pano films. And how does making paper emulsion different from a film emulsion? The, the emulsions are sensitised in a different way. Instead of forming gold, silver, sulphide specks, they're sensitised in a completely different way. And also, we don't add green and red dyes because the image is, the tone is already there in terms of the total range is already there as, as a consequence of, of the film. You don't need to extend the sensitivity beyond blue. Otherwise, you won't be able to use a safe light in the dark room either. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> After sensitization, the making process is complete and the emulsion is packed and stored downstairs. We will be going there to find out more. But first, we head further down the corridor to visit the control room. That's the brain of the whole emulsion making operation. We're now in the control room where we have in front of us a a bank of screens that's showing what processes are taking place in each of the manufacturing areas within the plant. The whole manufacturing process is fully automated. The recipes for the emulsion makes are stored within the process control system. The process control system manufactures the emulsions in the order that we ask them to. The process control system monitors the condition of the emulsions as they're being made and it also monitors the of the manufacturing plant and alerts our engineering crafts to the need to change pumps, valves in advance of their failing. So it's this monitoring the health of the plant as well as the condition of the emulsion as it's being made. The batches are made through a series of five or six different stages which take place in different areas within the plant. So as the batch moves from one stage, one room to the next, the process control system washes up the vessels and pipes that are in that room as the batch moves in in readiness for the next batch that comes along. So I can have upwards of five or six batches in the plant at any one time. The value is between 30 and 60 odd thousand pounds per batch. So there's a lot of money tied up mainly in silver within the plant at any one time. What we have here is... Look at the monitor screen in front of us now. I'm showing you the screen for the rapid mixing system, the number eight vessel that you can see on the centre of the screen there. The screen is bristling with monitoring hardware that's showing you temperatures, pressures, flow rates, everything that the computer needs to know to manufacture the emulsions. And it's also showing the control operator, who is essentially a policeman, making sure that the process control computer is doing doing what it's supposed to, it invariably does. Now today is a maintenance day. We've turned off the link between the process control system and the plant and handed the plant over to a maintenance crew so that they can do calibration checks and general health checks. We spend as much time doing health checks and maintenance on the plant as we do manufacture. Because photographic emulsions are like pharmaceuticals, you can't make, test and then rework them to get an acceptable product. It's either good or it isn't. So because of the value, we can't make and test and hope. We need to know that when we ask the process control system to manufacture a batch, it's going to be good every time. It's better to spend all the time before you manufacture rather than invest a lot of time after you've manufactured because it's too late. We've invested so much money over the years to making sure that it's a hands-free process so that the right amount of the right material is added at the right time. That's the only way to make sure that the products are, are reproducible. And the only way to do that is to have a fully automated plant. How old are the machines that you're working with? Uh, Younger than me. (laughs) The building itself is about 32 years old, as most of the buildings are on this site. But the manufacturing plant that's within is substantially newer than that. It's gone through several phases of investment and evolution. And I've already got permission from the board to think about how this plant might look in five or ten years' time. And I'm thinking about newer and better plant. What sort of skills is needed to do this job? Depends on which job you're talking about. If you're talking about a control room job, it takes about four or five years to learn about the operation of the plant and the way the plant operate interacts with the, uh, with the products. 
to do problem solving or uh, an operations manager's job like myself. I've been with the company for about 25 years. The first five or six was at learning photo science and the other 20 years learning the plant because as you've seen it's a very complicated plant and the interaction with the plant and the products is to a, a level that say that requires a, a, a good level of understanding. People I've spoken to seem to have a good understanding of other parts of the chain of processes as well as their own. Do you think that's the case or is it because I'm speaking to quite senior people? I joined the company whilst I was still in shorts and a lot of the people that are here are lifers. You know, they've been here all their working life and they get to know other areas of the, of the business as a matter of need because we need to understand the part of the business that comes before us and we need to understand the part of the business that comes after us in order that we can work effectively within this business unit. So yes, during the working, our working lives here, we've established good understanding of the whole business. What would you say is the culture of the company? The culture of the company, it's very people-focused and, and above all, it's very customer-focused. We spend a lot of time making sure that we understand what the customers need and do what we can to make sure that we, we, we surpass their expectations. So what we haven't mentioned is actually the smell that's in this building that people wouldn't be able to smell. Do you get used to it? Do you go home with a, a smell of chemicals on your clothes? I, I'm sorry, but I can't smell anything. <laughs> I must be uh, used to it. I occasionally notice it on a warm day where the extract units are. And what I think you can smell is the biocide that we add to the emulsion. Because gelatin is a natural product, you need to make sure that the emulsion, whilst it's being stored, remains unaffected by anything that might be in the air, so that we had a, a, a biocide to ensure that there are no ecological or environmental effects on the emulsion. Bro of him has a smell. Would you smell that? No, That's... no. Well, I, don't, I, 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 I get used to it. Andrew seemed desensitised from what I thought was a very obvious smell that permeates throughout this two-storey building. We head back downstairs to the ground floor to see the refrigerated storage warehouse. That is the last place the emulsion ends up in, in this plant. When the emulsion comes out of the cooking pot, let's say, what form is it in? Is it liquid, a goo, what is it? That's correct. When, when, when it's actually being made, it's fluid. Because it's gelatin-based, it needs to be fairly warm, otherwise, as you know, it will set off. The temperature can be anywhere between 35 and 60 degrees, depending on the type of product that we're making and whereabouts in the process it is. When it's coated, it's coated at a temperature that's a bit cooler than that. But when it's stored, it sets off because it's being cooled to below about 30 degrees and it sets off in a fridge that's at six degrees and that's where it's stored. Are they stored as jellies? This, well, no, because there's so much gelatin there that it's more rubbery than jelly. It starts off as a fluid and it gets thicker and thicker as you cool it down until eventually it's like a, a rubber that you would use, like an eraser that you would rub out pencil lines. So it's that sort of consistency. We're going into our fridge at the moment. There's around about £650,000 worth of emulsion in here at the moment. We're going into the cold store. You take this outside. I don't have enough hair to spend that lot in here. We've just come out of the fridge and you've got a black I've got bag. A, I've got a black bag that contains five kilos of solid silver halide crystals dispersed in gelatin. And it feels quite rubbery, doesn't it? Yes. It's not like jelly, is it? So if you could drop it, it would almost feel as though it would bounce. That's worth about £200, mainly because of the value of silver that's in there. As you see, it's stored in a sealed black bag, and that's obviously light tight. And then when it's required for coating, it's noodled, and then it's melted out. Noodled? Noodled, yes. It's put through a, a device that cuts them into long, thin strands, so they've got lots of surface area so it can be melted out efficiently. And then what happens after that? The emulsion is taken into the coating machine where it's put into vessels, it's melted out. We add coating aids like surfactants and other materials that enhance its photographic sensitivity and then it's coated onto photographic film or photographic paper. Once it's been coated it's, it's quite wet and before you can dry it you need to chill it off because the dryer will disturb the coating so it goes through a chiller fridge and then it's sent along a series of drying areas where it firstly dries the coatings and then makes sure that it's got the right humidity, the right level of dampness left in the coating such that when it's unwinding from your spool and when it goes across your camera spools you don't get static. 
People that leave the cassettes open on, say, the back seat of a car will dry that film out and you'll get static and other sorts of problems as well. And this whole coating thing is happening in a different building than the one we're in? It is, yes. It's just one machine and it's several hundred yards long. The majority of that is a dryer. It's going through a whole drying tunnel. That's it, exactly. That's what we call it. It's a drying tunnel and it's, it's hundreds of metres long. So it's a lot of moisture to get out there. Well, no. It's just that you can't drive it too quickly. You need to take the time. The coating machine, the base is running through the drying tunnel at nearly 100 metres a minute. If you had a shorter tunnel, you'd need to run the machine more slowly. It's a balance around what your output's going to be versus how long the drying tunnel is. Does having a longer tunnel increase the, output? It does, yes. We can, it means that we can coat upwards of 100 metres a minute, yes. And at the end of that drying tunnel, you might say for a film product, you get that big reel of film. Old paper, yes, we get a reel that's upwards of 2,000 metres long and between 1 metre and 1.6 metres wide, yes. These large rolls of light-sensitive materials, referred to as the parent rolls, are transported from one building to another in light-tight metal containers. The parent rolls are cut into smaller reels in a darkroom. The width and length of each reel would depend on the film or paper format. For example, for making 35mm films, a slice 35mm thick would be cut from the parent roll, and the length of material is trimmed to 600m per reel. This reel is also called a pancake. At the assembly line for 35mm films, a batch of HP5 is being made. This line is a linear series of connected machines which turn the pancakes into packaged and boxed products on a shipping pallet ready to be sent out or stored. Manager of the finishing department, Gaynor Hill, walks us down the assembly line. On the other side of that wall is the dark room, okay? And you know those pancakes, they're all in the dark room being loaded onto the stock points. It goes to a rotary perforating head. It runs along the edge of the film and that's how it puts the holes along the edge of the film. Each one of these little perforations that are cut out are sucked away the vacuum so that they can't get stuck on the film or in the cassette. So the vacuums are running at all times so anything that's cut off that film is immediately sucked away. It comes through the wall into this box here and in here we sign it. When they say sign it is on here, you've got your grade, you've got your frame number and a, digit, a four digit code. That four digit code is unique to this batch only. So if the customer wanted to have any information on this particular film, all he has to give is a four digit code. And we'll be able to backtrack everything, when it was coated, when it was cut, when it was cooled. At this stage, the film has been perforated and signed. That's the writing along the edges which has the film name, the frame numbers and the four digit batch code. As the film material passes through a light inside the machine, this writing is exposed through a stencil. Meanwhile, metal containers for rows of films, also called cassettes, join the assembly line from a cassette feed hopper. This is a loud vibrating tray that drops batches of cassettes to add them to the assembly line. This is what it sounds like. The cassettes are made separately in another building on site. The length of film is inserted into an empty cassette through its mouthpiece. That's the slit lined with two black velvet strips you would be familiar with on a row of 35mm film. The machine makes sure the fibres of the velvet strips are aligned in the same direction before the film goes in. Back to Gaynor. The film's coming through and it's, had its, it's, it's been signed. The machine in there cuts this little hook on the end of the film. The cassette comes along this conveyor here and inside there there's a little nick on the spool. The machine picks the nick up and lines the cassette up perfectly in position. It then picks this hook up, takes it into the mouthpiece, it automatically hooks onto this spool and it winds itself up. Everything's computerised and in there it'll know it's HP536 and whether it's 24s or 36s and it'll know how much film to wind up it then puts the tail and leaves the tail sticking out like that. The tail is the narrow end of the film you would attach to the camera's take-up spool. After the tail is cut, the row of film is assembled and complete. The finished row of film is transported to the next step. The machine detects the tail as it goes past to measure how far it is sticking out or if the tail is not there at all. That row of film will be rejected. 
Notice the rhythmic clicking sound in the background. That's the rate at which the rows of films are being made. One click per row. But suddenly the clicks stopped. Gainer reviews why. It might be the end of the slit. Shelly will have to go in now and take the take the uh, the spool off and put a fresh spool on. When a reel runs out of film, Shelley, who's looking after the assembly line, goes into the dark room to load the new pancake. The end of the strip of film from the old reel is taped onto the start of the strip of film from the new reel. The machine detects the joint and it spits it out. Shelley has to personally retrieve this joint to make sure it doesn't accidentally end up inside a roll of film sent out to a customer. Right, this section now, everything's in its spool. Shelley takes them off. White lights inspects it under the lamp to make sure there's no scratches or defects or impression marks. Shelley will also take two to the quality control department and they will be 100% infected. Shelley will also, throughout the slit, take random films and white lights inspect them under the lamp to ensure that there's no general defects on it. There are various quality checks along the line. For every pancake which makes around 350 to 400 rows of films, two rows are 100% inspected. This involves exposing and processing the films. One row is exposed with a tint, and the second row is exposed without any image. The developed films are checked through their lengths with a 10 times magnifying glass for any defects. This might be marks, scratches, or even misaligned perforations. Passing quality control, the films travel to another machine, which puts every roll into a plastic container with a lid. The film is now ready to be packaged in its retail box. Another machine has the specialized job for this. It even closes the flaps of the box and seals it with a blob of glue. Gaynor explains how this works. What we're going to do now is, it's got to be packaged. Black black cartons have come across the bottom. These arms have got little suckers on. This little silver arm. It just catches it and knocks it open. So the suckers hold onto the box and that just knocks it open. The clicking noise you can hear is blobs the glue. But once it's got the film in, the machine then folds the flap up, puts a blob of glue either end and closes it over. And it comes out the other side as a closed box. The machine will detect and make sure the box is nice and square. It's got a track that it goes through, and it'll it'll get stuck if it's not square. It weighs it, and that'll detect if it's got a 24 in it, whether it's a 27 or a 36. Sure that there's end caps on the film, two strips of velvet. So it, again, if it's not happy about something on the weight, it'll strip the set out, and all the rejected ones come out to be straight at the bottom, which the girls will examine. After a boxed roll of film has passed the last quality check, it's laser printed with expiry date and batch code. The films are packed in cellophane in tens, then packed in tens again inside a larger carton, sealed and labeled. A shipping pallet waiting at the end of the line gradually gets filled up with cartons, each carton containing 100 films. These are all done automatically. In Gainer's office near the assembly line, she tells me more about the finishing processes. The machine has now stopped because they've just finished a batch, and we've just seen a batch of HP5 films gone through. This machine isn't used for other types of film. It's not a dedicated HP5 line. It's not. No, we can do various batches throughout the day. We can do six, seven different batches.、It、depends on what the customer requires and what the orders have that have come in. We can do a HP5 followed by an FP4. We can do a 24 followed by a 36. It doesn't actually make any difference as long as the lines cleared down at the end of each batch. We load the new batch with a brand new, putting it into the Computer, new cartons, new film, new pancakes. So it's just make sure your clear downs are, are, are good at the end of each batch, and just start your new batches new. So you can do six batches a day, and each batch is like eleven thousand rows of film. Correct. How old do you think the machines are here? I'm not too sure how old they are. We got them in two thousand and six, stroke two thousand and seven. But how old they were when we got them, I don't know. But these are second-hand machines. Yes. Do they perform quite well? They perform well. They're on a maintenance schedule, so they're booked out to maintenance every so many weeks. And each part of the machine has its cogs oiled and its chains、uh, tightened and what have you. So in general, it runs very well. How would it differ from, say, making a 120 film? The 120 roll film line is not as automated.、Um, there's a bit more manual work involved in the 120 roll film line. It's just one machine working with one person in front of it. It's the same process at the beginning. Pancakes are delivered to the line, except this time they're 70 mil wide as opposed to 35 mil wide. But they're still 600 meters in length, and then they just follow through a different machine and a different process.
the pancake is put into a light type magazine in the dark so that the magazine can be brought out into the light and placed onto the 120 roll film machine so the girls can actually work in the light they're not working in the dark rooms they're only loading the film into the magazines in the dark room when does the paper get put onto the 120 at the same time it's one process where you've got an exposed label and an unexposed label one at the top of the machine one at the bottom machine you have a wrapper which is paper that you've just asked you've got your film in the magazine at one part of the machine you've got the spool being fed in on a different part of the machine and you have a piece of tape that attaches the film to the wrapper on another part of the machine and all of those components are all married up and threaded through to a a spooling head and it's all set up and everything happens all at once and it's all pushed together all in one go it's kind of like an octopus with loads of arms and everything head happens in the head area. <laughs> that is correct, yes. And you can't see what happens because obviously it has to be done inside a box to keep the film from being fogged. Uh, so although you, you sort of know what's happening, you can't actually see what it's doing because it's in the dark or it's in a box. Where's so. the, the 35mm process, smaller, a chain of processes, so there's a linear? That's right, yeah. It's length after length after, whereas this is all married up. And the sheet film, would someone have to work in the dark a lot more for that? Completely in the dark. Again, it's pancakes but they can be anything from 2 inches wide to 10 inches wide, depending on the format. What the girls will do in the sheet film area is chop the film. So the pancakes are placed onto a machine. The girls will sit at the front of the machine and they just chop it into sheets. By hand? The machine chops it into sheets. Say it's 8 by 10. The width of the film is already set at 10 inch because the slitter men did that made it into a pancake 10 inches wide they then put that 10 inch wide pancake onto the machine they set the chop length to 8 inch and the roll feeds through the machine and chops every 8 inches so you get a pile of film at the front of the machine if you want 25 sheets in your pack the machine will stop after 25 sheets the girls will then take the pack off and do the necessary put it in its sleeve put it in the bag put it in the box while they're doing that the next pack is chopping Once it's been packed, it can then go out into the white light area where it has its label put on it and it's checked. There's a human in a dark room actually hand-packing these into, I guess there's a cardboard sleeve and then a plastic bag and then three layers of half boxes. That is correct, yes. She sits in the dark room most of the day. Well, she comes out for break, but yes, she sits in the dark room. or (laughs) He sits in the dark room and and chops film. How many people would there be in the They work on their own. Oh they will. They, they can work in pairs, but a lot of the time they work on their own. You know, there are punishments like that. <laughs> no, they, they, they enjoy it. If, if they enjoy working because sometimes you can sit in the dark room and you can you can daydream and get your shopping done and see what decorating needs done at home and well, you know what I mean. But they're only in there for an hour, an hour and a half. Then they have to come out. They do role changes. They do job changes. They do QC checks. So they're in and out, in and out. They're not literally sat in the dark room all day. They have to do the quality control checks. They have to do size changes. They have to do job changes. So if I asked you to go into the dark room with one of the girls and ask them to show you how to do that job with the lights up, they wouldn't be able to do it. They'd have to do it with their eyes closed because they're that used to working in the dark. They can't do it in the light. They have to do it with their eyes closed. Wow. So it's quite, it's quite, uh, you just get something you just get used to. You find many applicants for that job? You find you either like it or you don't. You get here, you either get in the dark room and you instantly dislike it, so that's it, you'll go. Or you find, yeah, that's okay, and you get used to it. But you normally know within a couple of minutes of being in a complete dark room whether you're going to actually like it or not. It's not only that you're in a dark room, also this continuous noise, I guess, that's right in your ear. Correct, yes, it, it is. But again, you, it's if you're working with that machine over and over, you get used to it. You forget it's there, actually. It's not till somebody points it out to you that you realise it's it's making that noise. So, How long have you worked here for yourself? Uh, I've been here 31 years. <laughs> Gainer's making a face. <laughs> I want to say I'm only about 16, but, you know... <laughs> You you started young. I did start young. I was very young. <laughs> What's it like to work here? Um, I think the company. I'm glad you can tell after 31 years. If I hadn't have liked it, I would have left by now. I love it here. The people are great, and I think the reason for that is we all want the same thing. We're all striving towards getting a good product to the customer on time, and nobody deviates from that. If you need something from purchasing, if you need something from your boss. As, as long as it's justified, you, you normally get it. And as long as it helps get a good product to the customer, then it's absolutely fine. Good products need a well-managed business structure to make sure there's a steady supply long into the future, for as long as there's a demand for them. I had just a person to ask about all things Harman and Ilford. I'm Stephen Briley, and I'm the Sales and Marketing Director for Harman Technology. 
when the factory for Ilford and Harmon products, which is in Moberley, southwest of the city of Manchester in the United Kingdom. How long has this factory been on the site? Well, the factory goes right back to the original business, which would be 1906, when it was called the Rajah Works. That business was subsequently bought by Ilford many, many years ago. Most of the original factories long demolished. It was Victorian buildings, very old, no longer used. But the factory we're in today is the modern factory that was built in 1982. And the original factory was down um, in Essex, uh, near London. And all that was closed and consolidated here in Cheshire with a brand new factory. Can we talk about a bit about when the uh, business started? Because you've got a long heritage. We'll go back to quite an early days of photography. Well, um, <laughs> I'm old, but not that old. Well, the business goes back to 1879 when it was started by Alfred Hugh Harmon. And Harmon technology comes from Alfred Hugh Harmon. That's where the name comes from. He's the original founder. He is indeed. He was the man who originally started the business and owned it and so on. And it was called Ilford because it was in the town of Ilford. Um, I mean, clearly we're not in Ilford, which is on the outskirts of London. We're uh, in leafy Cheshire today, but that's where the brand name comes from. How many people are employed in the factory now? Today, we're just over 200 people here. What's the size of the place itself? It's quite the large. The phys- there's 35 acres of uh, space here. It was built back in '82 for a much larger business. And at that time, I think there were about 1,500 employees here. But you've also got to remember that this was the headquarters worldwide for the business. We had selling companies all over the world. So we probably got something around 4,000 employees all over the world. Whereas now we have 200, all based here. We have partners around the globe who distribute our products. And we don't have selling companies in the way we did. What's the relationship between the Ilford and Harman brand? Because um, products, sometimes they have one name or both of those names on there. Is it a bit confusing for the consumer? Well, all our Ilford films have Ilford as the prime brand, and then below it they say Harman Technology. And the reason they say that is that Harman Technology Limited, this business that you're with today, was formed out of the receivership of the original Ilford business in the UK. The company went into receivership. It had borrowed a very substantial amount of money from the banks, um, was owned by venture capitalists who were trying to get it to grow, and the money was borrowed because they believed they could grow a huge inkjet business that would eclipse and be way bigger than the traditional black and white. The only problem was, although the inkjet grew, its profitability was very poor because it was a highly competitive market. Whereas our core black and white businesses have always been profitable and good contributors to our overheads. So what happened was the money the money ran out, the company hit the buffers, and um, a nice gentleman called a receiver was appointed, whose job was to come here. Take Mr. The, Death. I wouldn't describe him as that. Some people have called the receivers that. I dealt with the receiver. I found them entirely reasonable because they allowed us to run the business. And in the end, that led to a management buyout. I was part of that team that bought the business back from the receiver. So, in fact, we had a good relationship with the receiver. But, yeah, if the business ends up being shut down, everybody loses their jobs. It's a pretty sad day and nobody likes the receiver. But in our case, you know, it was sad because a lot of people lost their jobs. But a lot of people kept their jobs and the business carried on. It didn't stop manufacturing. And then eventually we were able to secure this management buyout. And uh, it re-emerged as Harman Technology Limited. And we've been successful and profitable ever since. So in effect, Ilford is no longer a company. It's actually a brand name. Would it be right to say? No, it's a brand name in its own right. And uh, the other half of the business at the time, which was the Inja business, which was headquartered in Switzerland, was sold to a Japanese company uh, called Oji. They own the Ilford brand, but we have the right, in perpetuity, reassignable, to use the Ilford brand name for black and white. Right, you mentioned the Swiss Switzerland branch, and that has gone into trouble as well. It has indeed, and uh, it's kind of interesting that people were saying when we got into trouble, the original traditional business here, um, that it was because, you know, well, film's all gone away, and, you know, inkjet's the future, and digital's taken over. And indeed, the receiver portrayed to the press at the time that it was the tired old black and white business that had pulled down the, the empire, whereas actually the tired old black and white business made the profit, and it was the attempt to grow into inkjet and the lack of profit in inkjet that pulled the company down. And so right from the beginning, our focus has always been on let's make sure we stay profitable so we can pay our bills, make our products and supply our customers. Today, people understand who the Harman company is. But 10 years ago, if we'd imagine changing all the boxes and packets to 
read harmony wouldn't have been a smart move. And we never want to lose the Ilford name because it's really important to us. It's also our heritage. If you ask people here who they work for, they, they work at the Ilford factory. They know it's owned by a company called Harman, but the products that come out the door bear the Ilford brand. Well, some products have the Harman brand, the newer products that some, you've developed them, since. Yeah, some of them do, where we, perhaps under the licensing agreement, decided it was better you know, that we couldn't use the Ilford brand. For example, we have a, a, an inkjet paper, and we don't have the right to use the Ilford brand for inkjet. Now, if it was a new black and white roll film that we made tomorrow, it would absolutely use the Ilford brand, because that's what it would be. It's only when you're on this grey area, when you get into things like pinhole cameras, the direct positive use the Harman brand. You know, there are occasions when you need to use slightly different branding on it. But we've put the Harman technology brand onto all the Ilford products where we have to use the Harman brand. People hopefully make that link between the two companies. Can we get an impression of how big Harman is as an analogue film and paper manufacturer compared to others like Kodak or Fuji? Well, in, the, in terms of analogue, because we don't make colour, it will be very difficult to give you a figure for Fuji because I don't know what the breakdown is of all their different divisions. They've, they've got inkjet, makeup, special cream to rejuvenate your face, through to graphic arts. I mean, it's a very diverse business. I would imagine that their black and white is tiny compared There's to There's only those. one. And they only have one film left, so I don't know. In black and white terminology, you might say, I don't know, Fuji are a 20th of our size or even smaller. I, I can't give you that number. Kodak, we're bigger than Kodak as a black and white manufacturer. We, we make the largest volume of black and white film in the world and have done for a number of years. By market, there are different market shares. So if you said to me, how is our market share in Europe? It's much higher than Kodak's. But in Kodak's own backyard in the States, Tri-X is the dominant brand. And quite right, because, you know, it's an American-made product. Americans like to buy homemade things. A lot of people love the Ilford brand in America, but a lot of people grew up using Tri-X. So Kodak's market share on black and white film in the States probably is double ours. But when you take the whole worldwide business, we're bigger than Kodak and have been for some time. And, you know, if you ask me in the UK, where are we? We're better than 80% market share. And so we should, because this is our backyard. Kodak is also another company that's got a long-established heritage of making really good black and white films. They ran into trouble more recently, now come out of the threat of bankruptcy. Um, Has that had an impact on Ilford at all? Not really. It caused a lot of concern when they were in Chapter 11, because people were worried they wouldn't be able to get their favourite Kodak film. And we understand that completely. I didn't feel anything but sympathy for them, because we've been there. Ten years ago, we went into receivership, so I know what it feels like. It's not a good feeling for the people and for the customers who depend on that supply for their products. So, you know, if if you've never been through the receivership process, which, you know, we have, you perhaps could be very uh, smug about the fact somebody else has gone into Chapter 11, but we we could never be smug. And also, you know, people like choice with products. You know, it's no good saying, well, you know, hey, you can't get Tri-X anymore, but don't worry, we're here, and we've got HP5. Because we know for a lot of customers, sure, they might use our product because they've got no choice, but they wouldn't welcome the change. People are very, very uh, loyal to the products they use. You know, if you spent 20 or 30 years of your life using Tri-X because you love it, and you know exactly what it can do for you and how to handle it, somebody saying to you, you've got to change whether you like it or not, is not good news. So Kodak's receivership, we perceived as being not good for our industry because it set the seed of doubt in people's minds about the future. So when we heard that new company was being formed as Kodak Alaris, it was coming back, it was going to you know, get back to its roots and make film again and be all the things it used to be, I saw that as great news because it gives people cause for celebration and also some comfort that products will be around for a number of years to come. I can't comment on you know, what state Kodak are in. You know, is their business secure for the future? I just don't know. But we wish them well. It's in our interest that they actually do well. Who is the Ilford customer? How would you put us in the box? Or are there a number of boxes, different types? Well, we've got different kinds of customers. We've got customers who are very, very specific about what they want. And they're also very specific about what we don't do they want us to do. And they write to us and they tell us what they, you know, we should be doing. And you know, we get that and we need that feedback. A lot of our customers are students. They're largely getting told by their tutor what products they have to buy. So it's kind of not very optional. So if you're at a college in the States, the chances are when you do your 101 course and you do black and white, your tutor sends you a list and on it it says Tri-X or HP5, 35mm, 36 rolls, 10 off. And you go out and you buy whatever you're told to buy. And um, some may even say 
codec only. Depends on the tutor. They they're very prescriptive as to what. And the kids, of course, they buy exactly what they're told to buy. Chances are it's going to say off of multi-grade paper. So even if we don't have their uh, film business, we will have their paper business. That's um, a customer who's largely been driven by the tutoring on their course, who's telling them what to buy. And then we've got fine art photographers uh, who use a multitude of different products, different brands, different choices, different developers, want to work in different ways. They're very creative people and they just like a, a huge palette of products. And so we're one small part of the choices they have. The, the other market that's out there is the um, uh, young people shooting film, wanting to be different, not wanting to do things digitally, wanting to be analogue. Maybe they've got a Lomo or a Holger camera. They may not have a darkroom, they may not be printing what they shoot, but they're shooting film because they don't want to do things digitally. And that's been a growing market for us for a number of years. We've got what I call the photo enthusiast, uh, somebody whose passion, not as a living, but as um, uh, you know, their, their hobby, their, their, the thing that perhaps makes them tick, is to be a photographer and to shoot film. And there's a lot of those around the world. And they're very loyal customers. Uh, they're very critical customers. If you don't get it right, they tell you immediately. They make up quite a decent chunk of our business. So we try to focus on all those different areas. Then, of course, we've got the labs who buy the products and print people's films, particularly for professionals. We try to focus on all those areas and you know, listen to what they want. We started using uh, social media as a way of connecting with people. And we've done a number of surveys to find out what people use our products for, how often they use them, how old they are. And I think in the last few years, we're a lot more knowledgeable about who our customers are. I mean, social media is great um, for getting feedback because people pose questions. Why don't we do this? And we should be doing that. And they're perfectly valid questions. And whenever we can, we answer them. That's one level of feedback. And the other is that we go out and talk to people. So, for example, the colleges, we go and visit colleges, meet tutors, find out what their issues are, try and understand what their needs are for their students. Are these colleges in the UK or does it go outside? It goes outside the UK. I mean, I'm responsible for the UK, Canada and the US. Um, I visited over the years a lot of colleges in the US. And we have uh, agents who represent as exclusive distributors around the world. So our Amplis, our distributor in Canada, Phil and I have regular phone calls. If there's something happening in Canada I need to know about, he's telling me. And he goes out and visits schools and colleges personally. The same is true in Germany and France. So we, we've got eyes and ears in the form of distributors, and then we've got the things we do ourselves. One of our big issues is that we're English. You know, It's the language we speak, we write in. And we're great at We're not so good with German, but we've got a great German distributor who's feeding about what's happening there. You know, it's important to us to have good relationships with the various markets. And when the languages come in, we're then very dependent on our local distributor listening to what's happening and feeding back. Can you remember when was the last time an Ilford film was discontinued? When was the last time we discontinued a film uh, that Ilford made? I've got to say it's got to be over 10 years ago and it's the old company from before. I don't think we've discontinued anything. If I was to interview a film manufacturer, for example, Kodak or Fuji, inevitably the issue of film discontinuing whatever one way or another, there's always a recent one that I could probably mention to them. And when I have to think about that question for you guys, I couldn't think of one. No, I can't. I think we once made an XP2 in sheet film and it didn't sell. And that was years and years ago, like 15 years ago, and that went. Since... Uh, Harman Technology took over the business. We haven't discontinued things. In fact, what we've done is either improved or added additional products that weren't there before. So we don't see our job as being trimming our range. And and I should explain why, because I wouldn't want people to go over the impression that Kodak don't care. I'm sure they do. Or the Fuji don't care. They do care. The thing is that it's the scale of their business that's different. We've got about a £20 million turnover here in the UK. Fuji's turnover must be into the billions and it's an enormous business and they have coating plants that are designed for huge volumes and if we were here 10 years ago there were huge volumes of colour films being sold by Kodak and Fuji and those volumes today are tiny. The coating plant that still makes those products is the same huge machine that used to run 24 hours a day, 7 days a week and now it's not coating as often and that means that when the volumes get to a point where they're not economic the volumes are quite large 
Whereas for us, we always had a small coating plant. We were always a niche player. And our plant was designed to be able to make small volumes of films and quickly change from one to another. So in a really bizarre way, by being small originally and, and staying small, when it all kind of resized down, colour collapsed fast and the volumes went plummeted very fast. Black and white stayed at much higher uh, volumes relatively, so our decline rate was much slower and our plant was always designed for small volumes. So it's easy to sit and be critical of Fuji or Kodak and say, why have those products gone? Well, I understand completely. If I own their business with their coating plant, I'd probably have had to discontinue them as well. And we're fortunate that because we never got into colour and never got into massive volumes and didn't need an enormous coating plant, that our plant actually suits where we are today. Yeah, because you have a, actually a really stable product line. There's really classic products that have been around for a very long time, but still have a good demand for them. That must be an asset for a manufacturer. We're, we're very grateful that we have a stable product range and that customers want to buy the products and our volumes are still solid. I mean, we've seen things like 120 Royal Film in recent years. The volume is growing. Sheet Film has been growing. Maybe perhaps one range that has shrunk is Kentomir. When we took over the Kentmere business, we had originally intended to run the Kentmere business in the Lake District in parallel with our own. They had a coating plant up there. And it was always intended right from the beginning. We would close the business there and we'd manufacture it on this plant because we had spare capacity. And the truth of the matter is that um, one month after we bought the business, we had to close it. And the reason we had to close it was there were some very serious health and safety issues with the plant not being safe for people to work around. And we found asbestos in the building, which is lethal. You've got all these issues, which finding the asbestos in the building was the, what killed it. And so we had to literally, within a month, close the business and move out. And we didn't have the luxury of learning how to make all the products. If we'd had the six months we intended to have there, we'd have learned how to make printing out paper and all things that people say, oh, I wish you hadn't taken that away. Well, believe me, we didn't intend to discontinue And what it meant was, well, it was a scrabble to make the products we made. And most of them had to be re-engineered to go on our factory. It wasn't that we wanted to be where we ended up. It was where we, we were driven by the fact that the machinery at the factory wasn't correctly guarded. So you could trap your fingers in machines and there was inadequate ventilation. And we pride ourselves in our factory on being ultra safe. Legislation is very strong on, on if you, do, you don't protect your employees and uh, you expose them to asbestos you're going to be taken to court and you're going to be fined severely. So the minute we realised we had these massive problems with the plant, it, was, it wasn't a choice. It was, well, we've got to get out of there as quick as we can. Is that something you would check before you buy a business or not? Well, you, I guess you made, we made assumptions about their business that they met the legal standards that are required in this country. And they didn't. You know, when you go around and look at it, it looks all okay. When you send an engineer in who's looking at the machinery from the point of view, so if you put your hand in here, will it get crushed by that part when it comes down? Oh, yes, it will. Well, where's the infrared sensor that would detect your hand going in? Stop the machine. Oh, we don't have one of those. Ah, right. But wasn't any of the methods of how Kentomir products were made recorded or written down somewhere? Well, it was in people's heads. The the guy who made the emulsion kind of knew how to do it, and there was no process control computer. There was Bert, who had a list of things he knew how to do. And we didn't have Bert a month later, and we didn't have the coating plant that made it on, and we didn't have the mixing vessels. And the mixing vessels, for example, had open lids, so you could fall in them. So, you know, all that stuff you just seen in the factory, you can't get anywhere near any paddles or motors or anything rotating. The Kentmere factory had open vats, which, you know, is how we used to make things here in 1950. And it's, it's fine as long as you're adequately ventilated and the people, you know, can't accidentally put their arm in the machine. Well, you know, they could put the arm in the, their arms into the machine. They, they were handling chemicals that were, you know, dangerous to handle as they made emulsions. And it wasn't one thing that was wrong. It was a whole multitude of things where you think, whoa. In the end, it wasn't worth it. In the end, it wasn't safe to continue manufacturing there, and that's what forced us to close it. Well, we know that Ilford makes only black and white product, but it had some ventures into colour films did, and products yeah. at yeah. some stage. What happened there? What were the lessons from that? Well, it's way before my time, so I don't really have any personal knowledge of what went on. How long have you worked here for? I've been here 32 years. I think it was the 1960s when they were making colour film, and I believe there was some kind of court case at the time. Um, but the Monopolies Commission involved. And because of the way they were proposing to have the film come back to us for processing, 
it caused problems. And they said it wasn't fair and other people had to be able to process it. And I think at the time we were owned by ICI, British Chemical Company, and they just decided, well, this was too much trouble and we wouldn't bother making colour films. So in a really peculiar way, never going into colour all those years ago did us a favour in the long term in that today it's made us the business we are. So Ilford is basically strongly focused on black and white and the previous ones were more kind of distractions when they were um, colour products. Well, I mean, companies go through changes, don't they? And whoever's driving the direction of the company decides what's important. Now, since we took over, what's important is our core black and white business, nothing else. We don't get distracted by, could we make colour film? I mean, I'm not suggesting for a minute we are even attempting to try, we're not. <laughs> Um, that's a challenge way too far for just us. Just make sure people know that. <laughs> yes, just to be clear before people write and say, hey, that's a great idea, you should make colour film. We're not about to do it. You know, you've got to decide what kind of a business you want to be out the other side of buying it from receivership. And we said, no, let's concentrate on making those core black and white products. It was our belief, and it still is our belief, there'll always be a demand for these products. And we've been proven right. And I'm glad, as I say, we weren't in colour because we'd have had all the problems that those horribly reducing volumes that Coda Confuse you have been faced with. Yeah, so without that, because you have that freedom, is you can bring out new products and initiatives. And I think recently there were quite a few new things from Harman's. I'm thinking within the past few years, there were new printing papers, range of pinhole cameras, there's holographic plate, there's initiatives like localdartroom.com. But all those initiatives are focused around that core business. Yes. So you, you get that sense of, we're not easily distracted from our task of looking after the core business. Now, we do have some other businesses storing, you know, a warehouse full of products we store for other people, but that's warehousing. And we're good at warehousing for ourselves, so we offer warehousing to other people. But it's not a product, it's a service we're offering. And we have antimicrobial silver that's used as an antibacterial agent in clothing and other things. But it's made on our factory like we make our photo emulsions, but just for a different purpose. So as long as it's loosely in the domain of silver gelatin, black and white traditional skills, then you've got our interest. How do you decide what new products to support? You know, like you said, there's loads of suggestions about from people, we want this back, we want that back. How do you actually make that decision to whether to go with it or not? It's several things. The financials, really, have to drive everything we do because we're not sufficiently successful as a business that we can do things and make losses. So when we make a decision to make a new product, it, it, it starts with feedback from the market about what they want. And it might be enhancements to products we already make. It might be making a new format of film that we've never made, like 220, we haven't made for a number of years. It could be I'd like to see this particular film in a size we've never manufactured it. And what then happens is two things run in parallel. One is building the model of what might that business look like and how, what would the volumes be, and talking to the research and development team and saying, if we asked you to make this product, met this requirement, how hard is that? And they're going to go, ooh, ooh that's really a tough one. That would need 500 man-hours of R&D time to make a trial coating to say whether it's even feasible. And if then added to that, that huge amount of R&D time is coupled with, and you're going to sell very little of it, and it's not going to make you much money, then that doesn't look as attractive as something where they say, well, we could probably do that next Wednesday afternoon, and it would be fairly easy, and the volumes are big. Now, don't get me wrong, there aren't many things you could do next Wednesday afternoon that are big volume, because if there were, we'd have done them. But it's this combination of degree of difficulty, a resource available, and the volumes and the, the profit that comes out of it at the end. So if I sound mercenary, it's only because we come back to this mantra we have, which is we've got to make sure we stay profitable. Given a choice, our customers would choose that we stay in business as the number one priority. But how do you know whether there'll be demand before you've got the product out? Uh, well, sometimes it's gut instinct. It's down to all the feedback you've had from lots of people. And the problem is that um, people can be quite vociferous with their needs. But we go out then and talk to the market where we can. We go and talk to dealers. We talk to end users. We look at parallel things. You know, if we've done something like it in the past, what was the volume then? What do we think it might be now? Sometimes we get it wrong and we don't sell the volume we originally hoped we might sell, but we might sell enough to say, well, it's still worth carrying on with. But, you know, it, it isn't quite the amazing bit of new business we were hoping for. We've had several of those and we've had other things where we brought, we brought them to market, like the pinhole cameras, and been absolutely shocked at how successful they were. 
I think if you went and asked the customer, would you would you be interested in a large format pinhole camera and it will cost you this much money? I guess you won't get as big a response as you actually did when you brought it out. Um, well, we did ask originally. We went to the Focus on Imaging exhibition. But you early. had a, a sample with you. We had one sample with us. It was a it was a handmade sample. The man who made the camera. A prototype. Yeah, a prototype. And I, I took it along and showed it to people and said, would you buy it? And they all said yes. And I went back to the board and said... Well, a whole load of people at the exhibition said, yes, they'd buy it, so I think we should do it. And they all went, are you sure? And I went, well, as sure as I can be. All these people were keen. And sometimes you have to trust your instinct at that point. We did. And it went off and it was hugely successful. Now, that was different because somebody else was manufacturing it. We weren't spending huge amounts of R&D time. There wasn't a risk he couldn't make it because he'd already made it. So it's kind of more of a no-brainer to do a pinhole camera than it is to develop a brand new film emulsion where you might actually make a product at the end of it that's hardly any better than the one you already have. And then you're going to say, well, why are we bothering to launch this? Making a new film or a new a new paper is a major undertaking. It's thousands of hours of R&D time and time on the coating plant. And if at the end of it you deliver a product that's no better, then there's a lot of weeping, wailing and moaning because, you know, or if it takes, instead of taking six months, it takes two years. Well, you know, you're ploughing money in all the time into doing it. So we need all those trials of coating. Making a new product is not to be taken lightly because it's a big financial investment usually. You can't sell it because you, you, they're not, it's not product, it's, it's a process you're going through. What sort of people would buy holographic plates? What sort of people buy holographic plates? Holographers. Are there a lot of those? No. But that one, you decided that it was worth producing. Well, it was one of those things where sometimes you decide to do something because there's something else you're doing. We started getting requests from people to have us make holographic emulsion because we knew how to make it historically. And because we were making that emulsion for them, we kind of thought, well, we're making some emulsion, we could make some glass plates. And the hand-coated glass plates that we do here. So we made a few glass plates and we were back in holography. If we'd had to make the emulsion with no customer to buy the emulsion from us, we never would have done it. So sometimes things happen kind of as a byproduct of something else happening. We made a traffic camera film that happened to have infrared type properties, which were for the speed cameras in Europe. And suddenly it could be turned into a camera film with infrared like properties. And we had it in the range and you know, therefore it was available. Well, it wasn't that we set out to make SFX. We set out to make a camera film for traffic cameras and it happened to work as a infrared film as well um, so you get back into making things or you make things for all sorts of reasons i guess one of the newer is actually not that new in the uk initiatives is um, digital files to silver print is that a different paper to what we normally use in darkroom yeah it's um it's a paper that would fog under normal safe lighting you use it in total darkness so it's it's like a panchromatic paper because it's working with the red green and blue lasers um it can only be exposed with an led or a laser device can't use it any other way uh, there are labs all over the world have got light jets and lambdas that they can put it in uh, the original product we made for a number of years the resin coated and um, we made the fibre-based one because we got feedback that we should do. There was a market for it, and it's been proved since to be a very successful product. It's one of the best things we ever did making that product, because it means people who want real silver gelatin fibre-based prints but have a digital file, no negative, can still get real silver gelatin prints through this process. Now, you've got to go to a very specialised lab to get it, like Metro in London, or Griffin in New York, or Picto in Paris, and there's a number of others around the world. But you can get these prints, and if you're selling your work as a fine artist, your customers who are buying your images want silver gelatin images. That's their first choice when they collect. They don't want inkjet. For a black and white image, they want silver gelatin. So this is the kind of hybrid that gives you all the things you love about real silver gelatin prints, but from digital files. How's that compared to an optical print from a film negative? Very similar. The images in this room you're looking at, that you were admiring a few minutes ago, <laughs> all came off that LightJet device. The, the exposing method, the um, process by which it's made, only differ in that the sensitivity is different, and one is a very short duration exposure of milliseconds with a high-intensity laser or LED, uh, and it's built up in pixels, and the other is a negative shining down onto a sheet of paper. But the chemical process... The photographic emulsion that goes into it is just sensitised in different ways. But the end result is indistinguishable. Now, if you've over-messed with the image in Photoshop and smoothed it too much, somebody could look at it and go, what the heck is that? Because it wouldn't have a grain structure that you'd expect. 
that you see if you print a film. So if you're going to use it, you have to be quite subtle with it and not destroy what the film originally looked like. And remember, a lot of this stuff that's been printed is from film stock originally. It's just that they're huge images which are difficult to make in a darkroom. You can make a four foot by eight foot image on a lambda you'd have a real struggle in the darkroom to make an image that big. Right, so you can make a really large print when Huge you do the digital to silver gelatin print. You can. So there are things you can do with that process you can't easily... Well, I don't know many people are still running the larges where they're sat on a railway line in a darkroom and you move them in and out. I've you never know. seen one. I'd well, love there, to see one. <laughs> there, I've seen one or two still out there, but there aren't many. So it's a happy hybrid that fills some niches in the market but, you know, I don't think there's any comparison with a machine-made print to handmade print because a handmade print in the darkroom, there's a bit of the person got into it. No two are quite the same. Um, you know, there's their eye, their feeling that went into it. If you go on to tone it, they'll change subtly one to another. Professional printers who print for a living with negatives would say that that is the original craft way of making it and they decry somebody making digital prints. But I know labs who do it both ways and they recognise there are different markets for the two products because they are completely different. If the client doesn't have a negative and you can make him a silver gelatin print, I'd rather he was still having silver gelatin prints at the end of the day than having to do them on inkjet. Because that, to me, you know, is that's what our business is about. And I think the collectors who buy images, given a choice, would always buy silver gelatin. Because it's more archival. Well, we don't have to prove it's going to last 100 years because they have lasted 100 years. All the arguments about inkjet, about how long it's going to last, they're great theories. And we'll only know in 30 or 40 or 50 years' time how true those claims were. How can they say that if it hasn't really gone past test time? They can do accelerated testing, right. which will replicate many years of exposure to light. But from the collector's point of view, there's a risk attached to doing that. And collectors are very, very conservative people. So they're laying big money out on the print. There's a lot of anxiety amongst film community for a fear of film to disappear in a mm. near enough future. Other than shooting more film ourselves, is there anything we can do as consumers to keep production going? Well, there's no danger of it disappearing for us. You know, to be blunt, if people stop buying our film, we won't be making it. But the, the volumes are stable. Our business feels to be in good shape. The key here is, if you think it's going to go away and you're paranoid about it going away, it's probably because you've lost products you were very familiar and very keen to use. And I can't do much about that because I don't control that. If your love was Kodak Infrared black and white film, well, it's gone. And I'm sorry, we're not going to bring it back and Kodak aren't going to bring it back and it is suddenly a thing of the past. You know, I guess for some photographers, that's something they'll lament for the rest of their lives. For the vast majority of our customers, it kind of never got on the radar as a big product anyway. If you're worried about the future and you're using Ilford products, stop worrying because we're here. Look at our track record over the last 10 years. We're not heading for the exit. In fact, we staked our future on being still in this business. I can't give you quite the same reassurance for the manufacturers because the track record so far suggests we might have less in the future than we do today. So where does Harman see the future of analog photography growing into? Well, what we see is if others should stop making, we're likely to be the end place people come to buy those products. So I wouldn't be gloating and sort of crowing that we've got all somebody else's business, but it certainly would make our future more secure to have all the other volumes of all the other manufacturers. I hope they don't head for the exit. I hope the products don't disappear from Fuji and from Kodak because that's about choice and people like choice. It's a good thing. But if they were to disappear, we're going to be here. Kodak don't make black and white paper anymore. Fuji don't make black and white paper. It hasn't gone away. So I'd say, you know, stop worrying and just get on and enjoy making great photographs.